We've been talking a lot about God's promises, and we have some of them in front of us on this little half-sheet insert, and there are many more throughout the Bible. Um, I just want to read a couple of these. The first one uh, Tom referred to, I believe, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you believe that promise? That he will actually give you the desires of your heart when you delight yourself in him. Do you believe that? Let's look at another one. Jeff believes it. Or somebody over there. Maybe it was Ron. Cast your burden on the Lord. This is Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Do you believe that promise? All right. Some feedback. I love, I love that. One more. Jeff talked about this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do you believe that promise? Yes. I think that we do believe these promises, and I want to encourage you in this sermon based on the text in front of us to renew your belief in the promises of God, but I want to go one step further because our passage does, not just to believe these promises, but to act on them. We just as human beings believe a lot of things that we don't act on. I believe when nutritionists say you should eat less pizza and ice cream and more vegetables, but do I act on that belief to varying degrees? It's not the same thing to believe it and to act on it. They're two different things. They're related, and it's possible to believe these promises, to read these and say, yeah, I think that's true, and never act on them. But that's not what we're going to do. As Christians, and in response to the passage in front of us today, we're going to renew our belief in God's promises and renew our determination to live in light of those promises and act on those promises. And as we do, we'll have a line of people wanting to give testimony as to how God has held firm and true to his promises. Our passage is Genesis 17, verses 15 through 27. We're returning to where we left off last year, uh, just sort of slowly stepping our way through the book of Genesis. We're going to look at it in three sections. God makes a promise. Abraham questions the promise. Abraham acts on the promise. Those are our three sections. Now, obviously, we're in Genesis, and we're looking at Abraham, and so this is historical. This is the history of the beginning. It's of God's people. And some of you are history buffs, and so that you're sitting more upright now. You're like, oh, right, we've, this is going to be great. I love history. I love to learn about these things. Others of you are, are wilting in your pews. Oh, we're going to talk about Abraham and history, and this does not seem relevant. Well, it is interesting history, so I'm glad you're interested in that, those of you who are. I'm going to give you two reasons why this is pertinent to you and that you should rouse yourself to stay focused during this sermon, other than my dynamic sermon delivery. One, the promises made to Abraham are promises that trickle all the way down through Jesus Christ into the, what's called the new covenant to us. So these promises are relevant to you. All right, so it's not just some history about somebody else. This is our history as God's people. 
Okay, the second reason, Abraham in the New Testament is presented as sort of a prototype or example of what it looks like to trust in the Lord, to trust in his promises and to act on his promises and to receive the benefits of trusting in the Lord. So this is also an example for you. If you're wondering, what would it look like for me to actually believe these promises and act on them? Well, here we see a prototypical example of it. So this is going to be very helpful for you. All right? So now we're all focused. We're ready. First section, God makes a promise. Let's read the first two verses. Genesis chapter 17, beginning at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. All right, now I know we, if you haven't thought about this history in a while, you've got to kind of refresh your memory and get yourself back in the zone of under, remembering what's going on here in this bit of scripture. Try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes. So imagine you are Abraham. God is saying this to you. In Genesis already, we've seen creation. God created everything good, and he created humanity to live in a relationship with him in which we trust him and love him and enjoy his presence. But human beings rebelled against God, fractured that relationship. We call that the fall. Plunged humanity into this uh, dark, pretty terrible existence separated from their creator. In the midst of that, God chose this one man. His name was Abram initially. We now know him as Abraham. And said, I'm going to make from you, from your offspring, a special chosen nation that will be my restored people. And he gave him all these promises of many, many offspring, of a promised land, and that one day through his lineage would come a blessing to all the nations, which we now, looking back, understand was pointing to Jesus Christ. Okay? So Abraham has received these promises. He's already been dealing with God in these things. He's already left his homeland to go toward this promised land. He's already been getting used to these ideas. In the first part of chapter 17, God tells him that he's going to have nations come from his offspring, and he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Uh, that name change is going from a name that meant exalted father to father of a multitude. It was meant to signal, I'm going to do this. You're going to have nations come from your offspring. Here we see God promising that Sarah is going to beget nations. Nations are going to come from her, Abraham's wife, and her name gets changed. It's not as clear what her name change signifies, but it seems like both Sarai and Sarah mean princess, and that Sarai means one from noble descent, like someone who comes from nobility, and Sarah means one who will have noble descendants. That seems to be the, uh, the distinction. So Sarah, there's a little bit of information on your name meaning. You have noble descendants. And I see two of them sitting there with you right now. That's excellent. Now, there were reasons that these promises would have been hard for Abraham to believe and act on. Let me give you a couple of those reasons. First, they were old. They were around 75 years old and 65 years old, Abraham and Sarah, when these promises initially came. 
Now, anybody in here willing to admit to being in their 70s? Okay, got some folks in their 70s. They, I noticed the hands were only like this. They weren't like, me, look at me. <laughs> I'm in my 70s. Congratulations for being in your 70s. That's great. You are, you're wise, and we should all uh, honor you as such. Now, that imagine God coming to you with these kinds of promises at this stage of your life. Okay, anybody willing to admit to being in their 60s? That was more the age of Sarai. Okay. Imagine God coming to you with these promises at that stage of life. So, reasons for this to be a little hard to believe. Another reason, Sarai not only was really advanced beyond normal childbearing age, but she had been barren her whole life anyway. She had never been able to have kids. So there again, that's a reason to wonder, how in the world is God going to bring this about? And then thirdly, at this stage, at the passage we're at, it had been about 25 years since God initially made that promise. Where were you 25 years ago? Think back, 25 years ago, like think 1997, what was going on in your life? I was 14. 25 years ago, it was basically Elias. He's 15 now, so he's a little bit older, but how old were you 25 years ago? Imagine that God had made these colossal promises to you back then, and you had still yet to see any real evidence of fulfillment 25 years later. You can imagine how hard it would be to sustain belief in that promise. Let's think about the future. Let's say God came and gave you these promises now. Could you wait 25 years for fulfillment? Where will you be in 25 years? That would be the year 2046. I'll be 64, riding my hovercraft to church. There will be a hologram of me up here preaching, and I'll be in the comfort of my own home probably. Can you imagine waiting that long? Now he's pushing 100 years old. She's pushing 90 years old. Still, promise has not yet been fulfilled. But God comes here and reaffirms this promise. You can imagine, it's, it's not just an easy promise to believe. He says, I will give you a son by her. She will become nations and kings. And perhaps understandably, now we get to our second section. First, we see that God made these promises. Second section, Abraham questions God's promises. Let's read verses 17 through 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? I liked how the passage that Martha read put it as good as dead. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Anyone want to admit to being over 100 years old? Anyone want to admit to feeling over 100 years old? Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So Abraham is questioning these promises a little bit. Have you ever questioned God's promises? I actually think about that question. Don't, you don't have to indicate to me if you have or not, but have you ever encountered a specific promise of God in the Word and, and genuinely kind of questioned it? Really? Take, um, let's take one of the ones from our list. Take Matthew 
5.4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, some of you have experienced some pretty deep and intense mourning. I wonder if in the midst of that, if you, in your heart, question this promise, can God really bring me any sense of comfort in this deep, dark depth of mourning? What's interesting, reading that and seeing Abraham's response, falling on his face, laughing, uh, questioning to himself, can this really happen, pleading with God, how about we do it this way instead? What's interesting is to look in the New Testament and see that Abraham is presented as uh, the exemplary person who believed in God. That's the main thing the New Testament emphasizes about Abraham is that he believed God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness is repeated several times in the New Testament and elaborated on in passages, for example, like what Martha read just a little bit ago. Now, what that indicates to me is even for Abraham, belief in God's promises was a bit of a process. Belief in God's promises, real belief in God's promises can be a bit of a process. At first, he found it laughable. And then he had to wrestle with some questions related to it. And then he even began to plead with God for a a more plausible way. And all that really doesn't indicate doubt or disbelief. It indicates actual engagement with the promises. It's easy to say you believe these things, but when you get down to real belief in them, you're going to have to engage with them and actually engage your mind and think through, what would that look like? Can this actually be? Might he actually do this? Think about the next one on the list, Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, referring to the basic necessities of life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear, will be added to you. Now, some of us have probably found ourselves in circumstances of life where we were in some financially disastrous situation, And when we first encounter a promise like that, we just have to laugh. We just have to chuckle to ourselves. I don't know how that's going to be. I don't know how that's going to come true. Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, some of us have perhaps been in such bent over, exhausted, weary, heavy laden circumstances that you have to ask yourself, will I really receive any actual rest. If I go to church, I'm so tired. Could I actually go to church and sit through that and receive something that would be restful for me? John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he's promising deep down soul satisfaction if you will come and trust and follow him. I think often many of us have found ourselves in circumstances in life where we are deeply dissatisfied down to our soul. And we might, like Abraham, plead with God, I, I've been trying to read my Bible. I'm getting nothing out of it. I've been, I've been trying to go to church. I'm getting nothing out of it. Can you just give me satisfaction through some other means? Like Abraham asked, if we could, couldn't we just go with Ishmael? You remember Ishmael. Eventually, Sarai started to get a little antsy about this promise and took matters into her own hand and had Abraham have a child with her servant Hagar, and she had Ishmael. That was him giving up on the promise, seemingly, 
and trying to do it his own way. And here again, he says, you know, I already have Ishmael. Ishmael's about 13 at this stage. Can't he just be the promised one? I'm 100 years old. Candid engagement with God's promises isn't the same as disbelief. It's actually the process of believing in them. I remember, and I've shared this illustration with you before, but when I was a teenager, I was in the youth group a long time ago, 25 years ago, and I was at Trinity Baptist Church, and our pastor, Barry Bird, shared this illustration about a wheelbarrow, uh, a person who was going to push a wheelbarrow over a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he gathered a crowd, and he had his wheelbarrow, and there was the tightrope, and he gathered the crowd there and said, I'm going to walk across this tightrope pushing this wheelbarrow. Who believes I can do it? And, you know, somebody raised their hand. I believe you can do it. And he said, well, if you really believe I can do it, hop in the wheelbarrow. I always remember that illustration. Now, if that person was challenged, okay, if you really believe it, hop in the wheelbarrow. If that person then said, let me check out this wheelbarrow. Make sure these, everything's tight on this. Let me look at this tightrope. Let me do some measuring. Does that mean that he doesn't believe? I would argue that that might actually mean he's more believing than the people who are standing there saying they believe but just don't even engage with it. He believes enough to at least think about it, check it out. It's okay to do that with God's promises. It's a ladybug crawling on my neck. I think he's been there this whole morning because I have felt something on my neck. I'm sorry, that's distracting from what I'm doing up here. My point is, I think, pretty clear. I think you're with me. If you are really going to try to believe in these promises and live in light of them, you're going to need to engage with them a little bit. You're going to need to think it through. And that might look to others like doubt or disbelief, but it's not necessarily doubt or disbelief to ask yourself some questions about them, to talk to God and interact with him about them in prayer. Abraham wrestled with these things, and then God reaffirmed his promises. Picking back up at verse 18, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant, key word in this passage now, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. The key word in that reaffirmation of his promises is the word covenant. The point of this passage really is that God keeps his covenant promises. That is one thing you can lock in as an immovable object in your worldview and your understanding of reality. God keeps his covenant promises, and God's people can trust him to come through on his covenant promises. That is as solid as a rock. That is always true. A covenant is a relationship based on solemn commitment, solemn promise. Our closest parallel would be marriage. And when I walk couples through premarital counseling, we talk about this covenant language and make sure they understand you're making a solemn commitment to one another before God and witnesses. 
This isn't like a pinky promise. This is serious. This is strong. You are saying before God and witnesses that you will, as a husband, be committed to love your wife no matter what, until death do you part. And you are saying to your husband, I'm committed to love you for the rest of my life no matter what. And within that, there is absolute security. You know, I'm not worried. So I'm, I'm getting older. I'm turning 40 this year. I know some of you raised your hand in the 70s and 60s. or like, oh, cry me a river. But, I, you know, I'm at like middle age basically now. And I'm getting balder. I'm getting like floppier. I'm not worried that Meredith is going to turn away from me because of that. And the reason I'm not worried is because we made a solemn vow before God and others. So I know that I have locked her in on a lifetime deal here. And she knows that about me. And so we don't have any insecurity about that. I hope that that's what you guys have in your marriages, just zero insecurity in front of each other because you are absolutely locked in and committed before the Lord. Yeah, I forgot my credit card at a restaurant on the whole other side of Charlotte like last week, some time ago. Things have just been busy. I've been getting scatterbrained. I am the one, I am not the one who forgets a credit card at a restaurant. Of me and Meredith, I'm the one that knows where everything is at all times. Uh, She is strong in all the ways that I'm weak. That is like one of my contributions to the relationship. And when I realized where I had left and what had happened, she was just like, what is going on? And we were joking. I said, well, this I mean, that's pretty much it. Now, if I don't have that, what am I even bringing to this anymore? But even though still, even if I genuinely, if my memory issues just keep getting worse and worse and worse, we're, we're locked in. I don't have to worry about it. I know that she's going to fulfill her promises to me because it's a covenant relationship. It's not based on my performance. It's not, well, I'll love you today because you did well today and you didn't forget your credit cards anywhere. It's, I love you because you're my husband. I love you because you're my wife, period. So what does it have to do with any of this? The reason Abraham and his descendants could be confident in God's promises is because they were in a covenant relationship with God. God here doesn't say, oh, you're going to ask me questions about this promise? Forget it. Deal's off. He had already entered into this covenant relationship. It's secure. So Abraham could trust in God's promises. The original recipients of this book was Israel getting ready to go in and invade and try to conquer the promised land. One small nation versus all these mighty nations with one God versus a people who had many gods. How could they go and do that confidently? Because they knew they were in this covenant relationship with a God who always keeps his covenant promises, and he had promised them that land. And so they went. Not confident in their own might, but confident that God keeps his covenant promises. And so here we are now, through Jesus Christ, welcomed into what is called the new covenant with God. If you are a Christian, you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, and you're following him as your Lord, you are, as the Bible says, in Christ. And in Christ, you are in this covenant relationship with God, and he loves you at maximum all the time because of that. And his promises for you are absolutely secured, not because you're performing well, but because you're in Jesus Christ. And so you can absolutely trust in his promises.
Abraham, 100 years old. Sarah, 90 years old. They've been waiting 25 years. She has been barren her whole life, but they could trust this promise because God fulfills his promises. As fallen and weak as we are, we can trust God to come through on his promises. Some of you guys are insecure in your relationship with God and you feel like it's performance-based. Some of you feel like, you know, I haven't read my Bible much this week, so God probably doesn't love me quite all that much this week. I really shouldn't depend on him to answer any promises for me this week. It's not based on that. It's based on his covenant with you that Jesus secured on your behalf. It's locked in, 100% secure, 100% reliable. In those insecure moments, just don't even look at yourself. Look at what Jesus accomplished for you and be confident. God keeps his covenants. God's people can believe his covenant promises. But they aren't just to believe them, they are to act on them. Which brings us to our last section of the passage. I'll read the whole paragraph. Abraham acts on God's promise. Verses 22 through 27. We'll start at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to them. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now, if you don't remember what all this circumcision stuff is about, go back and listen to the sermon from this time last year where I went into excruciating detail about what all this circumcision stuff was about. Some of you may remember it. But for these purposes now, just know it was the sign of this covenant. So Abraham acting on it and performing these circumcisions was him acting on his belief in God's kind of unbelievable promises. Abraham trusted in this covenant-keeping God. He believed the covenant promises that they would have these offspring, and so he acted on it by circumcising like God had commanded him to do. Israel, when they were reading this history and remembering all this, believed in this covenant-keeping God. They believed his covenant promises of the promised land, and so they acted on it, by invading and conquering the promised land. We trust in the same covenant-keeping God through Jesus Christ. We believe his covenant promises in Jesus Christ. We act on it by living out the commands and all the truths of the new life that he's given to us in the Bible. Did you notice on this insert, pretty much all of these promises came with actions baked into them? For example, James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, it will be given to him. But in between, there's action to be taken. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. If you believe that promise, you'll act on it by asking him for the wisdom. James 4.8a, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The promise isn't just he'll draw near to you. There's action baked into the promise. So draw near to him. We believe these promises, we act on them. The charge from this passage is really a pretty simple one. Believe God's promises and act on God's promises. 
He is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. He always keeps his covenant promises. In Jesus Christ, we're in the new covenant, and it is full of promise, full of promises. God is faithful. He will fulfill them. We can believe them, and we can act on them. I want to invite you all to stay after the service. This is what we'll talk about together. What does it look like to believe these promises, to act on them? I'm hoping that we can each identify maybe one especially relevant promise to us right now that we will we'll write it on sticky notes, we'll keep it around, we will pray our way into fully believing and acting on it. I hope you can stay and do that with us. But for now, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for preserving this history and reminding us of your covenant faithfulness. And I just ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, work in each of us to empower us to know and remember your promises, to fully engage with them as true, to ask our questions, to wrestle with them, to believe in them, and to act on them. In Jesus' name, amen.